the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Mad Mike blows things up and puts them back together with panache. A peek into the future yields Bane Books treasure. The Bane Summer interns dish about their toils and triumphs. And part 19 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time on the podcast, we have an interview with Bain author Michael Z. Williamson. Mike discusses his latest Ripple Creek novel, When Diplomacy Fails, and his new short fiction collection, The Most Excellent Tour of Duty, Stories and Provocations. Plus, we have an interview with the Bain Summer Interns. We'll find out more about all of that in a moment, but first, the news. If you're a perspicacious Bane reader, or at least an obsessive one, you may have noticed that the new spring schedule has appeared on several of the book-selling websites. Those of you into publishing minutiae will know that we have three seasons, spring, summer, and winter, fall which also happens to match exactly the landscape at that time if you live in West Texas. When I lived in Dallas, we used to call winter brown instead of winter. Anyway, the Bain spring season has been cited, and it includes the new book in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series, On a Darkling Sea. Now, since the first book in the series, John's Under a Graveyard Sky, isn't going to be for sale until September, you can either be disgruntled that you already know the title of its sequel, or happy, because you know the next book in that very cool new series is on the way. Also in spring is book three of the Crown of Slaves series by David Weber and Eric Flint. This one is called Cauldron of Ghosts, and it continues the adventure of Manticorn by Anton Zawicki and Havenites by Victor Chakot. This is a wonderful sort of sub-series in the Honor Harrington universe. It's one of my favorites, and you can bet a lot of readers will be very happy this is on the way, and it is on the way in spring. Those are just a couple of the highlights upcoming next spring. We'll be talking about everything much, much more, of course. It's going to be a great 2014 with lots of new books by your favorite Bain authors, so batten down the hatches. I want to welcome Michael Z. Williamson to the podcast. Hi, Mike. Hi there. Michael Z. Williamson is the author of eight novels and now a short story collection for Bain. His first Bane novel was Freehold, which depicts a really well-done uh, libertarian society fighting for its freedom in an otherwise oppressive human star empire. It's a society up against a totalitarian adversary that includes the UN-dominated Earth and an autocratic and corrupt colonial alliance among many of the other subtle planets. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of that, Mike. Um, it's more economic than political. I mean, you know, co colonial planets are dependent a certain amount of trade uh, from the center, so you know there, there's political pressure, but the, it's you know de facto more than de jure. 
So that's the that's the freehold, the beginning of the series. Mike has also collaborated with John Ringo on Pauline War Novel Hero, which I think is a standalone jewel of a book. It's one of my favorite uh, books I've ever read of, of ours, Baines. Uh, it really evokes the, the famous Frederick Brown story, Arena, among others, with a human and alien pitted against each other. His other books are set in the universe of Freehold, either in its future or past, uh, at least his books for Bane. These include Contact with Chaos, The Weapon, Rogue, Better to Beg Forgiveness, Do Unto Others, and New Mass Market Paperback at Booksellers Everywhere When Diplomacy Fails. Furthermore, his collection of short stories and essays, Tour of Duty, Stories and Provocations, will hit stores in August days from now, and is now available as an e-arc at com. Mike, when Diplomacy Fails is a, a prequel, isn't it, to the novel Freehold, I believe? It, it takes place before it? It's it's the third Riffle Creek novel. It's halfway between now and Freehold in timeline, although that's not an exact position. You know, it's flexible if I need to insert other stuff later. So it's before the uh, the those sort of libertarian planet of freehold has formed and it's it's yeah grant is still a uh, colony uh, it's a team of mercenary bodyguards they're hired to protect the minister of state and uh tyrannical maybe you would characterize it or, or at least corrupt u.n government of earth um her name is joy highland uh, yeah you, corrupt more than tyrannical government at that point well you make you create a really wonderful antagonist in her she's she's like this uh she's a bit of a progressive less lefty demagogue but she's really smart she's made a career by demonizing groups like Ripple Creek and most other private enterprise but now that she's visiting the planet Matali and she needs them uh things things begin to change why has she come to Matali if that's the way you say it and what's the political setup going into the book and it's actually in the real world uh a lot of these politicians who were bad-mouthing groups like Blackwater and Triple Canopy were nevertheless using their uh, expertise while they were traveling around the world. <clears throat> puts, uh, puts the contractor in the awkward situation at times. Um, now the background for this is she's running for Secretary General, or is planning to, and the existing group in power, which is of her own party, but it's a different faction, uh, you know, likes the one they've got better. He's actually more pliable, more corruptible. You know, she's not a nice person, but she's relatively effective as a leader. Yeah, so they're trying to, you know, first keep her out of the way, out of the spotlight, and less visible. And she manages to create her own headlines. And you know, there's one small faction that is willing to consider arranging an accident. You know, they don't want to do anything overt, but if she dies heroically, it makes the rest of them look good for you know, standing up against whatever. Yeah, so but she goes in thinking, uh, she doesn't realize that, that a cabal within her own uh, her own political party is after her. After her, but she doesn't think they'd escalate beyond that. Yeah, and so she um, is, is perfectly happy to use and abuse Ripple Creek until suddenly she realizes that um, <laughs> that somebody really is trying to kill her. And, and to a certain extent, you know, security contractor expects to be, you know, the bad guy. If you need to cancel stuff, you, it's always sort of like my mom said, you know, well, my, my security doesn't think it's safe for me to do that. Um, you know, minor stuff, you're more than welcome to to pass off on them. But, yeah, she's sitting there blowing hot and cold at the same time, you know, bad-mouthing their finances and their, their 
their corporate background, but nevertheless, you know, quite happy to have them keep her safe. What is, um, I don't know how far you want to get into it. Is, is Highland based on any, uh, contemporary politicians? I mean, I can think of one or two that she, she highly resembles. Yeah, composite. I actually know people in state department and in some, uh, private entities who do executive protection. And, uh, actually a lot of the people you'd think in, in the real world who you'd think would be the most obnoxious to work with, uh, are very professional to work with. Uh, they, they're used to having details around them 24-7, and they you know, they understand it's part of their job, and they work with it. Well, there's some... Uh, Fiction, so I said have fun. Yeah. There's some great stuff at the start of the novel when the team is assembling. Um, That's one of my favorite parts. Is I just love movies and, and books where the team uh, begins to come together, and we see where they've... They've scattered from after their last mission. It felt like a cool Mission Impossible kind of episode that we've we've got going on. Um, let me just run down the uh, the team. It's it's like Alex Marlowe's the leader. T- tell me if I'm I'm off on the shaman. I think he's the logistics expert. Oh, Horace Mabuto's the uh, physician. He's a he's a fully qualified combat doctor. Ah, uh, he's like the medic and uh, doctor. Yeah. El Elka or Elki. Uh, Elka. Eleonora. A wonderful character. She's this half-crazy explosives expert. She's very good at her job. Uh, yeah, she's asocial, doesn't like people, um, but loves explosions. And she's she's a real favorite of mine. She's sort of crazy, but she's she's crazy like a fox. I imagine she's a lot of fun to write. Where do you think she come from, comes from in the Williamson psyche, or is she just something that... It's actually hard to write her personality because, you know, it's very... She's not actually mentally ill, but you know she's asocial, really not a people person, and I'm I'm fairly gregarious. R- writing her technical aspects and, and her you know, duty side is a lot of fun. You know, if you're very good with explosives and you can use them to do almost anything, how would you use them in this particular situation? And I've, I've done a little bit with pyrotechnics, and I've got a friend who's done quite a bit, both for the military and for movies who checks me on a lot of this stuff. I was going to ask you about that. Now, I know you're, you're I mean, you're a weapons expert. You know a great deal about uh, guns and knives and such, but I I thought maybe you had to do some some of the research on the demolitions there. Was was that a new area for you then? Or at least yeah. relatively? I, 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 some of the chemistry, you know, I've done a little bit here and there with civilian pyrotechnics. I've, I've helped dispose of some stuff in the military. Uh, basically, I was... You know, assisting the people who did the blasting. But, um, no, you can actually do a, an awful lot with explosives. People just don't like it. But, I mean, you can, you can cut holes, you can weld, you can dig trenches. They, you, you can do just about anything if you're willing to spend the money and, and have the boom. Who else do we have on the team? We have uh, Jason, the electronics whiz, I believe. Yeah, he does uh, some electronic security, uh, some uh, sensing in that. Uh, Elka also does uh, um, remote monitoring, and then she's got a variety of different shotgun loads, including uh, a camera round. <laughs> Elka's really cool. <laughs> she can shoot it over the area, and the camera will take a stream of photos and then project it into her glasses so they can get an overhead map in real time. There's a lot of uh, really cool projected military tech you have in the book that um, it seems like it might be something that actually exists. Um, well, a lot of it is, I mean, it's all been speculated, you know, 
whether it comes to development is another thing. I mean, the military's got stuff that they've had 10 to 20 years out for the last 60 years. Uh, they still haven't developed, but the concepts are fantastic. And eventually technology will get there. And uh, your so, warrior characters are Bart and Aramis. Am I missing anybody else on the on the Ripple Creek gang? I think that's uh, that whole team. Aramis is a cool character. He ended up with, um, is it Sharon in, in the last book? Sharon. Yeah. Yes. Which is a wonderful uh, sort of a siege on an, siege on an asteroid that they fight uh, mm-hmm. or, or a mining planet. Uh, he wakes up with her at the beginning of this book, so we follow him uh, as, as our beginning character. There's there's lots of action and mayhem in the in when diplomacy fails, but the book also makes a bunch of telling points. You've you mentioned some of them, among other things, that it shows the hypocrisy of those who want to take away effective weapons from ordinary people, but you know when the chips are down, want them for themselves. To what extent should we draw analogies to current events when we're when we're reading the book? You never get preachy in the book about anything, but you do make some telling points. How do you maintain that that balance to yeah. keep it fun? Any any culture is going to have a variety of social and political issues. So you know some of this applies to the present day, but it also would have applied to you know, um, feudal Japan, Britain between the wars. In, in you know various aspects fit various cultures. All human politics is is jockeying for position. You want what's best for yourself and your people. Um, if you can afford to make other people happy, that's fine, but your your primary concern is for your own goals. That's just human nature, and politics is the the peaceful way of uh, achieving it, and warfare is the violent way of achieving it. One other thing I want to ask you about uh, when diplomacy fails is the, is the cool sort of bouncing spring things that, that some of the bad guys wear. Um, is, mm-hmm. Does that have any, did you just come to you or does that have any basis in reality? That was actually based on the prosthetic limbs they've got for paraplegic runners. They, they came up with those quite some time back. There's this photo of this you know, very attractive young lady, you know, very fit, very healthy runner, and she stops below the knees. And then there's these fiberglass uh, legs and sprints like a demon. Uh, those are just a, a rolling fiberglass spring. They don't have any supplemental power. Um, I've seen some recreational, not quite stilts that have springs in them for bouncing about. And I extrapolated on that with better spring technology that you'd be able to, you know, jump across alleyways and small streets between buildings. Yeah, I mean, basically, you you come up with a believable way that they can almost fly or at least have Batman like <laughs> abilities. And, mm-hmm. and it's kind of scary because they, the bad guys can descend on you from, yeah. from above. So yeah, those have to show up again. I mean, it's not something you use once and throw away. Those oh, have yeah. to become part of the, uh, uh, the gear. There's a great depiction of them with on Kurt Miller's cover of the book also. Yeah. Cause the, the one disadvantage is that when you are in a parabolic trajectory, um, you, are in a parabolic trajectory, you can't change direction and take cover. And when one of the people you're facing is a uh, trained competitive shotgunner, uh, you know, you're sort of giving your giving making yourself a target. Yeah, yeah, and and not to give anything away, but that may happen in the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let's uh, let's shift gears and talk about tour of duty. Um, 
the new collection. The subtitle of the book is Stories and Provocations, and it's divided into two parts. The stories um, are very wide-ranging. Some are set in the Freehold universe. Um, a couple of fantasy tales you wrote with your wife, Gail, I believe. and uh, some fantasy pieces I wrote and a couple I wrote with her in uh, another universe. Two other universes. No, one of the universes. Uh, some are fantasies, and a couple are contemporary fiction, at least one. Uh, mm -hmm. A really strong entry for me is the very first one called The the Humans Call It Duty. It's the first story in the book. Um, this is a really amazing story told from the point of view of a, I don't know what it is, it's a jaguar I of some leopard. sort, a leopard. It's uh, And it's been raised to some sort of basic consciousness for use as a as a weapon. And this, the creature, he, I think it's a he, uh, has got one task. He's going to avenge his human partner or die trying. Um, was this really your first short story? Because it's really powerful, and I thought it was, it was great. How'd it come about? Yeah, I'd, I'd finished Freehold, and I knew it had a potential market. I was trying to get noticed. And I had another author advise me to write short stories and get those published and you know get a couple seen so that uh, I had some visibility. That used to be the ideal way to get novels sold. It's uh, the time that was going out to Vogue, and it's no longer really good advice because there's a lot fewer short story markets these days. Um, you know, these days you need the online presence and visibility seems to be the best way to get noticed. But I wrote a couple of different stories. That was one, and uh, the, what was later became The Price was another one. Um, I sent it out to a variety of magazines, and I kept getting rejections, which you know, was fine. That happens. And I, I came to one foreign magazine, which was actually uh, got government sponsorship. You know, they weren't able to make a profit uh, out of their work, which is always telling. But they actually wrote me back a letter saying, this is a simple tale of revenge and killing. It isn't science fiction, and conspicuously did not check the send us your next story. Uh, box. You know, everyone else just either sent a form letter or, you know, thanks for sending it to us. We looked at this. It's not really what we're looking for. Yeah. So this one was flat out rude. And I started, I, I went, actually, I, I mentioned in the, in the, in the lead into that in the book, I went on the Bain's website and said, you know, so these people were rude. Um, all these other people, the form letters are formulaic. You know, at last, it doesn't work for us at this time. You know, what's the last? They're not really sad. You know, they're giving me bad news politely, but you know, dear contributor, thanks for submitting, but we can't use it. You know, why? Why is a last in all these rejections? And Jim Bain replied, he said, maybe they're being alliterative. The lack, the last, the lay, and told me to send him the first chapter of Freehold me take a look at it. So I wound up getting published, and then that story unchanged got picked up for Future Weapons of War Anthology, edited by Joe Haldeman, who is a phenomenal writer, great guy, very knowledgeable. Yeah. You know, he thought it was worthy enough to include in there, well, and I've, I've since sold at least one reprint. Haldeman knew a good thing when he saw it, I guess. Yeah. But it really reminded me of Jack London's story, Call of I the... Think it's, yeah. I think it's a respectable story. Yeah. I think it's very good, um, and, it's, uh, and it's really good for a first story. It's like... This, I mean, it's like you, you burst upon writing uh, short stories full-blown instead of uh, the usual development curve. I, I assume you short had stories, that. Short stories are, are in some ways harder because you've got to get your character defined, 
and your plot's defined in you know one one twentieth to one tenth the space of a novel, and you know you're you're creating a universe and then throwing it away when you're done unless you do more stories in the same universe. In the uh, Freehold universe, I've got military leopards. The Freehold forces have they have, they have dogs as well, but uh, some of the big cats are quite trainable and they've got even better senses than dogs do. And there's you know, also the fact that we're used to dogs. We've had dogs somewhere between 15 and 50,000 years, people hear dogs barking, it's not necessarily scary. When a big cat snarls, it's terrifying. You know that is a predator, and you know that it will quite happily kill you and eat you. Well, this, this, like I was saying, the story really reminded me of Jack London's Call of the Wild, um, with because we're inside the viewpoint of the of the jaguar, and it's this sort of completely trusty but absolutely lethal uh, uh, ruthless narrator that, that really gets to I you. always liked Jack London. Yeah. actually make a direct connection there. I've, I've always enjoyed his work. He's a phenomenal writer. Um, yeah, this, this leopard is trained to help with you know, reconnaissance and you know, potentially with security missions. And then once the handler dies, he's both upset and doesn't have anyone to rein him in. So he reverts to instinct and you know, fix what hurt him. Well, another excellent entry in the uh, collection is the brute force approach, which is a, it's a story that highlights what I think is a big Mike Williamson strength. I see it in a lot of your work, and that is the way you portray blue-collar men and women. Uh, you do military well, but you also just do um, blue-collar guys really, really nicely. You really got them down, make them feel real. Um, and, you know, as a guy from a blue-collar family, with brutes at least, I appreciate that. So... Um, in brute force approach, you have two sort of working class cultures figuring out how to work together to save a bunch of people. Do you think this strength uh, in your writing, which I've seen in stretch across, it comes from any of your own personal experience, or or were you a child of privilege and and this is all writer? Oh, no, um, my father was my mother was a barmaid while I was really young. Uh, while my father was in school, he was alternating semesters. This was in Britain. He was a power lineman. You know, alternate semesters between going to college as an engineer. He did some work for British Rail. Can you tell us a little bit about your background growing up? And it's very, it's interesting that you're, you come from England. Right. Yeah, my father's Scottish, my mother's English. Uh, they met in Liverpool. They got married at 19. And uh, so, yeah, my, my mother did a variety of jobs that were appropriate for ladies at the time because it was a, you know, a different nation and uh different culture. Um, my father was going to school. Both very bright people, they both threw themselves into making uh, the family work. And so, yeah, I remember, you know, we, we weren't poor, but we, we were by no, no means rich. You know, it, it was a... Uh, it was a adequate lifestyle. Well, you go into that in uh, to some extent in in your introductory essay to the book, and it's really a fascinating story. I mean, you you immigrated to Canada as well when you were young. First, yes, and, mm-hmm. and then came down to America. There's a really moving uh, um, bit of your introductory essay when you uh, you took the citizenship vow or oath that uh, oh, I was. Yeah. I was at such a ceremony when my wife took hers. It was and it really gets to you. <laughs> you don't expect it to. Yeah. Well, it, um, Canada's very pretty. It's a very nice country. Um, I've always liked when I've been there, although these days Toronto's looking more and more like Chicago. You know, I mean, it doesn't have the crime, but it's got the crowding and 
it's much less pretty than it used to be. Uh, the problem with Canada is if you're living near the major population centers, that's a very small chunk of what's the second largest country on earth. And both the cost of living and the population density is outrageous. If you can manage to live out in just a few further miles out, it's it's amazing. But if you're working in industry, you're you're stuck in the cities. We all got down here to. Did you grow up? You grew up in after you moved to the U.S. and around Chicago. Is that correct, or is it? No, uh, Newark, Ohio. Ah, okay. Columbus. Uh, actually, quite. It's forty miles from Columbus, so we were fairly. Uh, suburban. In the Midwest. Because before that, it had been Liverpool and then Mississauga, which is adjoining Toronto and is effectively part of the same metroplex. But by the time you took the, uh, you became a U.S. citizen, you were also in the Air Force. Yes, I enlisted just before my citizenship was finalized. And stayed in, off and on for many years. Yeah, until I got sick of it. <laughs> the nonfiction in Tour of Duty is also a lot of fun. You you have these advice columns by a sort of Viking persona you adopt. Can you explain, uh, is it Uncle Einer? Katie yeah. Einer? Uh, well, I, I do reenactments with the uh, Society for Creative Acronism, the SCA. We're actually getting ready for Penzik right now, which is their big annual get-together with ten to 14,000 people for a couple of weeks. And, you know, it's, it's creative anachronism. It's supposed to be fun to do. So I, I joke about, there's a whole variety of jokes about pirates and, uh, and uh, Vikings. And, you know, I, I told them, you know, Vikings were pirates before it was cool. You know, not, not really a uh, vicious marauder. I'm an incendiary slum clearance specialist. <laughs> there's a whole bunch of this. And I've got an advice column from the perspective of a semi-fantasy, semi-historical barbarian. Dear Crazy INR, what do I do about this? I did that for the Penzik newspaper for two or three years. What is, explain Penzik to us real briefly. Uh, well, there's, uh, it's two weeks in Pennsylvania. There's ten to 14,000 reenactors on site for the duration. Everyone's supposed to be in garb. I'm actually helping my daughter finish her leather coat of plates so she can do some youth combat. Um, there's, there's combat with rattan swords. They're, it's full, it's full contact, but they're not sharp. There's archery. There's arts and crafts. Everything from um, embroidery, upholstery, metalworking, brewing and venting, cooking. I, I showed up last year with some pattern welded Viking style knives with silver fittings. I was feeling really good. And a friend of mine shows up where he'd drawn his own wire and hand braided the, the bolsters. While he's feeling pretty good, someone shows up who's just a 14th century clock, <laughs> hand-forged all the gears. But first he hand-forged all the tools so he could make the, the, the clock he properly. Make them and probably uh, dug it out of the ground, the ore out with his hands or something. Yeah, so, yeah almost. So uh, there's kind of a... You've got people who are yeah. mostly there to play and are more fantasy-oriented, but it, it's all cultures and eras. So you, got, so you veterans try to one-up one another with authenticity. Well, and yes and no. I, 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 I'm, I'm playful about it. You know, I, there's people who show up wearing you know, colors not found in nature and patterns and spandex, and they are only squintably passable as medieval. And I, I've got one horribly outrageous outfit that's black and white, houndstooth, stripes, and plaid, all of which is documentable. Uh, if you look at me through a camera lens, you, you will go blind trying to focus because there's so many contrasting lines. It's really disorienting, but it's completely documentable as something they could have had. <laughs> Doubt anyone actually did. Yeah. But there is a, a gentleman who does set design in Hollywood who's actually got, comes in on a truck 
a small truck, breaks down, um, knocks together. It's a two-story um, Venetian apartment. He's got a tiled floor, bookcases, a spiral staircase, a four-poster bed upstairs overlooking the lake on site. Absolutely beautiful and fantastic. Wow, that is commitment to reenactment. And uh, but, yeah, we, we show up, we, we beat each other with sticks, we <laughs> test each other's beer and wine, uh, eat lots of food, have a good time. Uh, I do some smithing on site most years. I also make a variety of stuff to sell, knives, swords, some armor supplies. It's, it's two weeks to sort of reboot my brain, although these days it's hard to manage without. I, I used to not care what day it was, and these days I pretty much have to have a laptop so I can stay on top. Orders, media requests, run credit card. I lost a little bit with that. Well, let's uh, to return to tour of duty. There's um, and to get a more bit more serious, there's a really chilling account of your of of your uh, pseudo arrest. Well, it's a real arrest and a night in jail, mm-hmm. um, and it just sounded enormously irritating and potentially dangerous to you. Um, and you didn't do anything, but the cops just wouldn't let somebody who didn't kowtow repeatedly, at least this particular group of officers. More the um. More, more the guards at lockup. The, the cops were, yeah. you know, formally polite. Um, didn't rough me up. You know, it was, uh, you know, two or three people involved. They, you know, said, "Well, we're going to have to arrest you." It's like, absolutely, sir, no problem. You know, I, I, I'm usually armed. I told them I was armed. I told them where my firearm was, where my pocket knife was. You know, they, they were fine. Um, but at the same time, you know, to them it was just a case of let's round everybody up and send them downtown. And they can worry about it down there. The Marion County lockup actually has had, well, uh, then had, I don't know if they still do, a variety of problems that resulted at one point a federal judge coming in to view the conditions. And if I recall correctly, while he was there, somebody died in custody. Basically, he, he had some mental problems. He got in an altercation with somebody. They roughed him up, and he got ignored until he died. And that did not go over real well. Um, this was shortly before or after that. It was in that same general time frame. But basically, they stuffed us into this cage and ignored us. You know, now, they're sitting there processing people in, accounting for everybody. You know, The judge has to decide if there's charges and the prosecutor. Uh, basically, it takes 24 hours to process in and back out, at the least. And you know, They tell you if, you're, if you get arrested on race weekend or something similar in Indianapolis, figure on two days that you're going to be there. Um, the food is marginal. It'll keep you alive. They make sure they physically hand the food to everybody. It's probably a requirement. They, they don't let anybody go without. But a lot of the uh, the guards, their attitude was, you know, you're all guilty, so, you know, who cares? And, of course, you know, a lot of people will not have charges pressed. Mine were dropped. A lot of people will be found not guilty. Yeah, this isn't prison. This is the just a lockup. It, it seems like the whole attitude of you're guilty and you're, you've abrogated any rights you might think you have. Right, yeah. Yeah, they were they were exceedingly unhelpful to the point of um, you know, of being uh passively aggressively malicious. You know, they they would not do stuff to help you that was perfectly within their purview. And you know, I, I could I, I could understand how doing that job for a while would make you jaded, but at the same time they they were aggravating the the problem of bringing a lot of it on themselves. Well, it sounded rather rather terrible and you really do a good job of evoking that experience in the essay. Um well, let's get back to the stories of, of Tour of Duty for a moment. The one story that was my personal favorite in the collection is Desert Blues. It's this wonderful kind of moment in, uh, I believe it's like a forward deployment base, perhaps in Kuwait. That's set in Iraq. It's set in Iraq. 
Yeah. And there's mortar fire. Everybody scrambles for shelter. But this one guy uh, continues playing an electrical guitar, uh, electric guitar, uh, and he just keeps playing. Was he playing? I think he's playing Dire Straits or. He was playing um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, The Sky is Crying. Oh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, that's right. Followed by Dire Straits, a couple different pieces. Um, you were in the Air Force and deployed in Kuwait and perhaps in Afghanistan. I don't know if you can say. But. Um, so twice in the Middle East, you know, our base handled logistics for Kuwait and uh, southern Iraq. When we were out and about. I'm sure you drew on experience to write this one. Did you or not, or did you at least? Uh, because it really felt. Well, awesome. yeah, some of that. Yeah, some, some of that was well. Certainly, the environment was based on where I was. Do you play guitar? That was. Uh, I, I play guitar. Um, I haven't actually kept up with it in some time. I, I used to be pretty good, but I've never been a composer. I could play what other people wrote. As I did more and more writing where I can be the creative force, the, the guitars fall by the wayside. Um, I gave one of my guitars to my daughter, and I bought her a couple of others. She's working on classical gas, um, smoke on the water. She also plays keyboards, harp, harmonica sings she, she, she does a variety of stuff yeah appears on the cover of rolling stone with with guns or within yeah, some, yeah but she ironically she made it to rolling stone holding a gun um yeah i haven't played quite uh, in, in quite some time really just a little bit now and then yeah. yeah i play guitar um a lot of people over there did i was actually surprised how many people had some musical ability uh, our shop had a guitar that someone had left there an acoustic and we'd pass it around it felt like, I mean, what it did was it, it really humanized. Um, it, it felt like, you know, they're warriors, but they, they've got this other side to them, and you can't turn that off any more than you can turn off the warrior side of you when you're in such a situation. It was a, yeah, that was a lot of it. I mean, it was just the same thing day after day. You know, the, the weather was oppressively, I was there during spring, summer, and fall, the weather was oppressively hot. You know, the wind was constantly blowing. Stuff was constantly breaking. Get threat warnings periodically most of which nothing ever happens. The people you work with, you, you learn all each other's annoying little traits until you want to just strangle somebody in their sleep. And I know they wanted to strangle me too. You know, yeah, everybody's got their foibles. Yeah, any, any kind of entertainment we could get you know, was welcome. I mean, you show up, I, I had a backpack. Um, I had didn't have an iPod. I played music from my computer. There's plenty of cheap mass market bestsellers that people would send us. I had some of my own books, and I was working on a novel at the time, and and that was it. You know, because our our duty days were officially twelve hours and usually fourteen or sixteen. What were you you were working on contact with chaos over there? Or... Yes, and I as a ranking NCO, I actually had uh, we, we had a hard billets and we had two people to a room um, phone that only went out or sorry, only came in. They could call us, we couldn't really call out, but the emergency happened. You know, it was a bang late at night. The phone rings. Yeah, yeah, we'll be right there. My roommate was uh, in charge of our power plant, uh, former 101st Airborne, and I don't know how this guy ever managed in the infantry because he couldn't sleep without the TV on. <laughs> and I'm not a fan of TV. I didn't want a TV in the room. I was quite happy. You know, there's one down in the, the, the break room. Of course, the enlisted people had one TV for the whole building. You know, you know they decided we were, were worthy, and I would rather have not had it. Uh, <laughs> And here I am trying to write a novel, and you know, the, the the TV's on. It's like, yeah, oh. cut so well. Well, um, anyway, the Desert Blues is a great story, and uh, Tour of Duty is a really strong and wonderful collection. So, Thanks. 
The books are When Diplomacy Fails, the eighth entry in the Freehold series, and uh, Tour of Duty, Stories and Provocations by Michael Z. Williamson. Both are at Booksellers Everywhere. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. Sure, thank you. We like to give you the inside scoop sometimes on uh, what goes on around in these parts. And today we have with us the Bain interns. We have a passel of interns with us today. These include Christopher Cifani. Hello. Allegra Torres. Hello. Is it Allegra or Allegre Torres? <laughs> Allegra. I see. And Marie Paduk. Hi. <laughs> What's up? All of you have uh, done some intern tasks so far with the I think with the exception of Marie who has come in a few times you guys have been at this for several weeks uh, how would you rate the experience so far what was it like was it like what you expected um I would say I didn't really have that many expectations coming in I have enjoyed the experience so far though um I I, I I didn't know what to expect. I was sort of uh, an open book. I'm interested in an the publishing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm interested in the the publishing field, uh, and part of I guess my only expectation was to learn something about what the publishing industry is like and whether or not it's something that I really would be interested in going forward. And uh, with that expectation, I think that I've. Figured out that I, I am interested in it I still. You've it hasn't, made your decision. Yeah, <laughs> so, hasn't soured me on the yeah. on the prospect. We were really trying, but I guess you're gonna have to. You're gonna stick around. How about how about you, uh, Allegra? Um. Well, I was told that it was gonna be a little bit of everything, and that it was definitely gonna be a learning experience, and it has been. Um. I I think. It's what a, have you learned? To How treat to... books as commodities? <laughs> still no. <laughs> no, you still like them after all. I love them. We all love them here, actually. We just pretend like we're we're doing it for anything other than love, right? Yeah, you pretend to be jaded, but deep yeah. down. We like it. So, Anne-Marie, what have you found out so far? Um, you're going to be with us a long time. You're going yeah. gonna to stretch into the fall. I... I guess a mix of them both, because I wasn't sure what to expect, but you do learn a lot. <laughs> I I like all the reading you get to do, and the reviews, and I don't know. Yeah, all right. Well, what do you think is the most interesting part of the experience so far? You would say reading uh, mm -hmm. perhaps slush manuscripts is what, what you're looking at. It's, it's stuff that... Um, has been passed to me, and I'm getting uh, reviews from the interns on it to uh, to evaluate, and then um, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at it. So it's it's uh, sort of the next tier up from the slush uh, that these guys are going through. But I th it's a very interesting uh, experience, isn't it, to encounter uh, submission manuscripts? I think reading the slush is probably one of the most interesting parts because you never really know quite what you're going to get because you guys get such a, a wide range of uh, manuscripts with all these different ideas and, you know, different backgrounds for the authors. And so uh, it's, it's, you get to read just a, a really diverse uh, range of fiction and it's really interesting. 
Yeah. What other? What about you, Christopher? Um. Well, I've certainly enjoyed the slush reading process. Um. Enjoyed is maybe a strong word for it, but uh, <laughs> uh, at conventions, like I like to go listen to the editors speak on panels as opposed to writers, which I, I know is a little different from um what a lot of people go to writing panels for at conventions. Um. And of course, slush is one of the things that they like to tell stories about and about it being so <laughs> horrible. Um, and luckily we've mostly been spared, uh, on that, the, mostly. the worst, the worst one that I personally read was really only mediocre and some of them have been quite good. Um, as far as other interesting aspects, um, one of the more interesting things I found is seeing some, something of the process of something starting and, um, moving through the various stages to being a finished work. And obviously, um, none of us have been here long enough to see any single long form work move, move all the way through that. But some of the, um, things that go on the Bain website, we've looked at and done some, um, proofreading for. And, uh, that's been interesting to, to see those things, uh, which have a quicker turnaround come, go from when they come in to when they get, uh, Put up as yeah, completed, and product. you've seen pieces of of how the books go out and how they how they are produced um, as well. the The program is designed to give you some insight into publishing, and you folks have gotten a glimpse of, of glimpses of the process. I think uh, editorial production contract, and uh, you've seen how the production process works too, because um, you've seen copy edited manuscripts come in. You've seen them go out for copy editing. You've you've helped write up the transmittals. Which is what we send to the uh, to the typesetters. It's a pretty comprehensive view. What do you think is the part of the experience you that you've gained the most insight into publishing from? Um, not just not necessarily the funnest, but something that was you just didn't have any idea about till you till you came. Well, I think I didn't realize exactly how much back and forth there was before the book actually like became a book. I sort of had this idea that like the manuscript comes in, it gets edited, it gets published like nice, smooth, straight line, but it's really this kind of like back and forth loopy thing and uh, there's just so much more work that goes into it than I than I really expected. It was a little intimidating, but yeah. You know. Did you think you were just going to, like, John Ringo and David Weber were going to be wandering around bringing in their manuscripts? And, I mean, we uh, kind of hoped. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, what is the coolest thing about being a Bain intern so far? And and really, I know it's hard to choose because there's so much. The filing, all of the filing uh, we get to do. <laughs> we give you the context <laughs> of why you're doing it. What, what about those ISBN number proofreads? That's got to be fun. No, tell me, tell me what's the coolest thing? Uh, the swords. The swords were pretty cool. Yeah, the atmosphere here is um not not really what I expected, although when I when I visited for the first time it was very quickly apparent what the atmosphere would be like. Um the office cats, of course, uh <laughs> it, when we were um preparing for this that came up as one of the the cool things about the office and everybody it's here a nice is perk. Yeah, and uh and and the free books. There there's some free books involved too and that that's a a, a perk and 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 kind of a running joke about like um interns taking home free books. <laughs> yeah, well, you've discovered some writers that you didn't uh, definitely you didn't you hadn't read before that way as well. Yeah, now we're hooked on them. Uh -huh. In fact, when I That's came in, <laughs> when I came in the first time, uh, they gave me a stack of books and said, "You need to read these authors if you haven't, because you need to be uh, familiar with them." And I've read two or three of the ones that I was given um, and, and very much enjoyed them. 
You guys are kind of like dealers. Like you give us a little sample and then like we're hooked and you know, we just we're have not, to go through the whole series. Uh, we're not kind of like dealers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that was fun. Now let's get back at it. We've got long list of ISBN numbers to proofread. Yay. So thank you. Thank you all for being with us today. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free, or choose from more than 100,000 other titles, including many Bane books, when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's Star Kingdom of Manticore has defeated one long-standing enemy, the Havenites, and reached a truce with another menace, the ancient aristocratic Salarian League. The Salarian League is crumbling, and on the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the Talbot Quadrant. This is a region allied with the Star Kingdom and on the border of the restive frontier of Salarian space. Goldpeak sympathizes with the rebels, but wants to be careful that whatever help she supplies them is in a time and place of her own choosing, and not that of her enemies. Now in the Saltash system, that chance may have arrived. With the help of Salarian battlecruisers, the system governor has impounded Manticoran merchant ships in a deliberate act of provocation, hoping to ambush any RMN forces dispatched to investigate. Royal Manticoran Navy Commodore Jacob Savala and his destroyer squadron have dashed those hopes with a devastating and deadly display of martial and technological superiority. But the system governor is proud and arrogant, and he still has Manticoran civilian hostages. Here is part 19 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. The official wallpaper of the Saltash System's governor's office disappeared, finally, from Jacob Zavala's display, replaced by the same fair-haired, hazel-eyed Solarian to whom he'd already spoken. There was something different about that face this time, though, and there damned well should be. The idiot had taken over ten minutes to respond, and it wasn't as if he had time to burn. Desron 301 was only thirty-two minutes from cinnamon orbit now, its velocity down to 10,568 kps, and the range to cinnamon was barely more than 33 light seconds. Zavala would have thought that someone who'd just gotten the better part of 6,000 of his own men and women killed might have felt a little urgency about keeping any more of them from dying, and he felt anger seething up inside him as he glared at the other man. Just sit on that, Jacob, he told himself harshly. Yes, he fucked up and got a lot of people killed, but so did you. You didn't have to sequence those launches that closely together. You could have put a couple of minutes between the first one and the second one, given Dubrovskaya more time to react, but you didn't, did you? No, he hadn't, and he doubted anyone would ever fault him for it, except himself. Any board of inquiry would consider his actions and decisions fully justified by the disparity between his squadron's ability to absorb punishment and its adversary's potential firepower. And the accuracy of his own fire and the sheer destructiveness of the Mod-G laserheads had taken him by surprise. 
He'd anticipated that it would take at least two salvos to completely cripple or destroy one of his adversaries. That was why he'd targeted one salvo on each battlecruiser, expecting to hammer it with enough damage even a Sali had to take note of it, and consider that it might be wise to surrender quickly. He'd certainly never expected to blow up battlecruisers with a single launch each. All of that was true, but he'd still had time. Perhaps he hadn't had the ammunition to justify going for Fire Plan Zephyr and simply wasting an entire double broadside that didn't inflict any damage at all, but he could have stretched Sledgehammer out, launched the first salvo with exactly the same targeting but waited a full minute, or even two, before launching the follow-on salvos. If he'd done that, that first launch would have turned into a far more emphatic sort of Zephyr and given Dobroskaya one last chance to recognize the truth, and the time to save more of her people's lives. He hadn't, and he knew that was one reason he felt such stark, murderous fury when he looked at Damian Duenas. I trust you realize you've just murdered several thousand Solarian military personnel, Duenas said without preamble. I assure you, the Solarian League isn't going to forget it. Vice Admiral Dubrovskaya and you, Governor, were given ample opportunity to stand down and avoid any casualties, Zavala replied flatly, stepping on his own anger yet again. And speaking of avoiding casualties, there's the small matter of those destroyers you've got hiding behind Cinnamon's moon. What about them? Duenia sounded like a man biting pieces out of a sheet of copper, and Zavala's eyes hardened. Governor, if I was prepared to engage your battlecruisers, what makes you think I won't engage your destroyers as well? At my present deceleration, I'll enter their powered envelope in four minutes, and I'm no more prepared to allow them to shoot at my vessels than I was to permit Vice Admiral Dubrovskaya to do the same thing. Given the piss-poor performance of your missiles and the obvious inadequacy of your anti-missile defenses— not to mention your delay in bothering to reply to me, I will give your crews five minutes to begin abandoning ship. I don't intend to go any deeper into their engagement basket than that, however, no matter how crappy their weapon systems are. If they haven't begun evacuating their ships within that time limit, they'll receive the same treatment Vice Admiral Dubrovskaya's battlecruisers received. Captain Zavala, the Solarian League doesn't respond well to threats, and even less well to the unprovoked massacre of its military personnel. You and you alone bear full responsibility for everything that's happened since you intruded into the sovereign territory of an independent star system under the protection of the Office of Frontier Security. Don't think for one moment that the League is going to overlook what you've done here today. Your actions have just enormously decreased any possibility of a peaceful resolution of the tensions between your star nation and mine. I have no doubt whatsoever that one of the Solarian League's demands, if Manticore wishes to avoid the devastating war it's invited, will be your surrender to face trial as a war criminal. You've just used up 45 seconds your destroyers don't have, Zavala replied in a voice of iron. They now have four minutes and ten seconds. Are you totally insane? Duenas demanded. Aren't you listening to a thing I'm saying? Four minutes, Governor. 
and you might want to ask Vice Admiral Dobroskaya, or her ghost, if I abide by my time limits. Their eyes locked, and Zavala found himself wondering just how pig-headed a single human being could be. Sir, I have another calm request, Lieutenant Wilson said quickly over his earbug. It's a Captain Miao of the destroyer Avenger. Put it through, now, Zavala said, and Duenius's face vanished from his display, replaced by that of a tall, thin woman in the uniform of the Solarian League Navy. Her expression was hard, stony with hate as her eyes burned out of the calm at him, but she had herself under better control than he would have expected. Captain Zavala? she said flatly, speaking. I am Captain Miao Pinghua, she said in that same iron voice. I feel certain the consequences of your actions are going to be profound, far-reaching, and ultimately disastrous for your star nation and your navy. Unfortunately, at this moment I'm forced to concede my tactical inferiority. It's obvious your weapons far outrange my own, and it's equally obvious you're prepared to use that advantage. I have to assume you're not prepared to enter my missile envelope before you do so either. In your position, I certainly wouldn't be. Her lips might have twitched with the faintest shadow of a bitter smile. That suggests you intend to destroy my destroyers as you did Vice Admiral Dubrovskaya's battlecruisers, unless I accept your previous terms and stand down before you do enter my range. In light of how little time that leaves, as the senior officer, the senior surviving officer at any rate, present, and absent instructions from the civilian authority in this star system. This time the flicker in her eyes was unmistakable, Zavala thought. I'm ordering my personnel to abandon ship. A diamond dust glitter of life pods began to spill away from the destroyer's larger icons on Zavala's plot, and he felt a tremendous sense of relief. Be advised, Miao continued, that my engineering officers have programmed remote self-destruct commands into my destroyer's fusion plants. Should any of your small craft approach within 5,000 kilometers of any of my units, the enabling code will be sent, and the ship, and any of your personnel who may happen to be aboard it, will be destroyed. She bared her teeth. You won't be capturing any classified data in this star system. First, Captain Miao, Zavala told her, I'm relieved to discover that someone in this star system has the mother wit to step away from avoidable bloodshed, I'm sure you don't want to hear this, but I respect how difficult your decision was, and I commend you for having the moral courage to ignore that idiot in the governor's office and save your people's lives. I take no more pleasure in killing people than the next man. Second, I have no intention of interfering with your destroyers in any way so long as they pose no threat to my own vessels or personnel. Had Governor Duenas been willing to approach this situation with a modicum of rationality, I wouldn't find myself forced to require you to abandon ship in the first place. And Vice Admiral Dubrovskaya and several thousand of your fellow spacers would still be alive. He held her eyes for another moment, 
letting her see the truth and the flinty determination in his own. He chose not to mention the fact that the Royal Manticoran Navy already had more captured information and hardware to play with than it could possibly use. Three obsolescent destroyers in a nowhere star system like Saltash wouldn't be worth the trouble to board. Nonetheless, he had to respect Meow's determination to see to it that they wouldn't be boarded. And now, Captain? Zavala resumed. Without any desire to appear disrespectful, I think I'd better return to my conversation with Governor Duenas. I'm assuming you'll be in charge of search and rescue operations here in Saltash. While I can't allow your destroyers to participate, for obvious reasons, I give you my word that any civilian vessels you may dispatch for that purpose will be unmolested. And if you require any sensor assistance to locate survivors, I'll gladly provide it. In fact, we've dropped remote platforms at the site of the engagement, and we're running a plot on all your pods, small craft, skin-suit transponder beacons, and debris. If you'll hold this circuit for a moment, I'll have my ops officer arrange a direct feed from our CIC to provide you with that information and keep it updated. Thank you, Meow said stiffly. You're welcome. As I said, I truly would prefer for no search and rescue operations to have become necessary. He looked over his shoulder at Lieutenant Commander Gabrowski. Arrange it, please, Alice. Of course, sir. Gabrowski nodded from her position outside his comm pickup's field of view. She also raised one hand and pressed the palm lightly across her eyes for a moment, then grinned, and Zavala nodded back. He'd known Gabrowski would make certain the sensor feed provided nothing but the most basic, essential information to the Sollies. It would never do to give Meow a look inside the RMN's actual capabilities. Good day, Captain Meow, Zavala said, and his mouth tightened as the Solarian officer's image disappeared. I suppose we'd better get the asshole back, Abijat, he told Lieutenant Wilson. Fresh fury throbbed somewhere deep down inside Damian Duenas as he stared at the wallpaper on his comm. How dared Zavala simply put him on hold in the middle of a conversation? He sat in his comfortable chair, fists clenched on the blotter in front of him, and the anger within was welcome. It fired his determination and buttressed him against fear, and however little he wanted to admit it, he needed that buttressing. He had to be strong, show his determination— if he wanted to spin the situation into something besides a disaster when the smoke cleared. The back of his brain was already busy with ways he could demonstrate that it was actually Tia Lacanen's lack of support and Vice Admiral Dubrovskaya's wildly inaccurate assessment of the military situation and her poor and aggressive advice as his senior military officer and expert which had created this disastrous situation. Bad as it was, it still wasn't something a skilled operator couldn't recover from, and whatever happened, Zavala's actions made it obvious he'd been right all along about the need to demonstrate the Manti's rogue behavior. So, a symbol flickered in the corner of his display, and he scowled as he recognized Kodu's personal attention icon. He growled in irritation, but Kodu had been with him long enough to know how he'd react to any intrusion that wasn't amply justified, and he punched to accept the call. What? he snapped not trying to hide his anger at the interruption. Governor, his assistant said, 
I've just received a report that Captain Meow's personnel have abandoned ship. What? Duenas barked with a very different emphasis. The report came in from System Traffic Control. Hodu's struggle to keep his own voice calm was evident. They're arranging atmospheric clearance for the pods to planet here at Kanuish Spaceport. That bitch! Duenas snarled, betrayed by the Navy yet again. Meow had no business, no authority, abandoning her command. He represented the Solarian League's authority in Saltash, not her. But what else should he have expected? Dubrovskaya had been a fool, promising him victory over the Mantis, so why shouldn't Meow turn out to be a coward too terrified even to face them? He closed his eyes once more, nostrils flaring, and made himself suck in a deep lungful of oxygen. He stayed that way for a handful of seconds, then reopened his eyes and forced his hands to relax before his fingernails dug bleeding gouges in his palms. Actually, this could work in his favor, he realized, as the automatic spike of fury subsided. He hadn't ordered her to stand down. She'd done it unilaterally, without so much as consulting him, far less any order to do so. It was a clear case of cowardice in the face of the enemy, one which couldn't possibly be charged to him, since she hadn't even warned him of her intentions. And it could only emphasize how poorly he'd been served from the very beginning by the naval forces assigned to support him here in Saltash. It was scarcely his fault the Navy had first misled and misadvised and then betrayed him. His mind flickered through the best ways to make the Navy's culpability clear without looking as if he were trying to alibi his own actions. Fortunately, he and Dabroskaya had discussed his original plans privately, face-to-face, -face, here in his office. He'd have to review the records of their later calm conversations, verify exactly what had been said, so he could be certain his account of those initial conversations jibed with it, but he was an old hand at crafting properly phrased memoranda and... The wallpaper in his display and Kodu's image disappeared, replaced by Jacob Zavala's face. I apologize for the delay, Governor, the Manticoran said without any discernible sincerity. But I had to take another call. Something about saving lives, I'm afraid. Should I assume you're referring to Captain Meow's cowardly decision to surrender to your threats? No. You should assume I'm referring to Captain Meow's sanity and moral courage in refusing to see her personnel killed because of your pig-headed fatuous arrogance. Duenas felt his face darken again and his jaw clenched. He's trying to make you lose your temper, he told himself, trying to rattle you, make you look like some out-of-control hothead. Personal insults to the official representative of another star nation may be typical of the Star Empire of Manticore's approach to interstellar relations, Captain, he said coldly, and I'm sure the Solarian League's government is going to be deeply impressed by your bizarre version of diplomacy. No doubt the Salarian electorate will be equally impressed when the record of this conversation is released. Unfortunately, your insults are no more likely than your murderous actions have already been to cause me to comply with your outrageous and flagrantly illegal demands. Zavala cocked his head, eyes narrowed, as he considered Duenas from the calm and the governor looked back with a hard, steady gaze. 
They stayed that way for several seconds, and then Zavala shook his head. Governor, I'm at a loss to understand why you're so determined to turn a disaster into a complete debacle. You've already gotten thousands of Solarian naval personnel killed. Now you're proposing to get still more people killed in pursuit of an action you know perfectly well was illegal from the outset? Have you considered psychological counselling? More insults, Captain? Duenia smiled thinly. They seem to be getting a little less trenchant. Are you running low on inspiration? Or perhaps you're beginning to realize how the blood of the men and women you've murdered today is going to spatter your precious star empire once word of it gets back to the soul system. I'm not taking anyone's blood lightly, Governor. Zavala's tone could have frozen helium. I would very much prefer for no one to have been killed. Unfortunately, you and Vice Admiral Dubrovskaya took that decision out of my hands, and I don't think you quite appreciate the actual state of affairs between the Star Empire of Manticore and the Solarian League at this moment. The deaths of Vice Admiral Dubrovskaya and so many of her personnel are a tragedy, and one which I deeply regret. But I doubt very much that they're going to have any significant impact on Manticore's relations with the League. Your career, yes. Interstellar relations, no. I assure you, you're mistaken about that. Governor Duenas. There was something like a note of pity in the Manticoran's icy voice. You're clearly even more poorly informed about current events than I'd thought you could be. Just under three T-months ago, Fleet Admiral Crandall invaded the Spindle system. Twenty-three of her super-dreadnoughts were effectively destroyed. Another forty-eight surrendered, along with every screening and support unit. Over a hundred thousand of her personnel were killed, just about as quickly as Vice Admiral Dubrovskaya's people were killed here, and all the rest... All of them, Governor, every single man and woman, are now POWs of the Star Empire of Manticore. As deeply as I regret the lives which have been lost today, they're barely even a footnote to what's already happened. The only questions you should be thinking about right now are how to keep anyone else who doesn't have to die from being killed, and how your own superiors are going to react to the consequences of your arrogant, high-handed, illegal, bone-headed actions in first seizing Manticoran merchant vessels, secondly refusing to release them, and thirdly provoking the engagement which ended so disastrously for Vice Admiral Dubrovskaya's squadron. Duenius's eyes widened despite himself. There hadn't been time for details of what had happened in Spindle to reach Saltash. All they'd had had been third-hand rumors and fragments carried by a single ship— a merchant ship, not a naval vessel or an official courier, which everyone had realized must be wildly exaggerated. Yet even those obviously inflated loss figures had fallen far short of what Zavala had just said. You don't have any corroboration of his story, the governor reminded himself, and he's got every reason to lie to convince you to back down. Besides, that's ridiculous— Almost eighty Solarian super-dreadnoughts taken out by a neobarb navy with delusions of grandeur? Preposterous. I trust you'll understand why I have to take that assertion with a grain of salt, Captain Zavala, he heard himself say. You can take it with whatever you like, 
but that won't change what actually happened. And in regard to that, and because this entire conversation is being recorded from my side, and I intend to demonstrate that I did everything in my power to convince you to show a gram of rationality, I'm prepared to transmit to you copies of Solarian reporters' accounts of the Battle of Spindle from League News Services with correspondence in Spindle. You may not wish to take my word for it, and I'm sure you could convince yourself any Manticorn records I showed you had been falsified, but perhaps you'd be impressed by Solarian reportage of events there. Duenius felt himself waver and stiffened his nerve. If you could falsify one set of records, you could falsify as many as you like, he replied harshly. And whatever may have or may not have happened in Spindle, you're in Saltash now. The policies of the Solarian League and the Office of Frontier Security, when confronted with acts of terrorism against our systems under Solarian protection, are known to the entire galaxy. I can't prevent you from murdering still more Solarian personnel and endangering the lives, property, and livelihoods of the citizens of Saltash, but I can, and will, refuse to condone your actions or lend them any tincture of legality. If you persist in this blatant aggression, the consequences will be your responsibility, and the ultimate repercussions for your starnation will be far worse than you seem able to grasp. So you're categorically refusing to release the Manticoran personnel and civilian vessels you've illegally imprisoned and seized in this star system? I'm categorically refusing to allow you to violate a legally declared medical quarantine, and I'm categorically refusing to kowtow to the irresponsible and illegal use of naked force against the Solarian League Navy. In that case, and since we seem to be making certain this is all part of the official record, be advised, Governor, that I intend to have those personnel and those vessels back. Zavala's eyes bored into Duenas. I'm informing you now that I intend to put a boarding party aboard Shona Station. If every Manticoran interned in this system is surrendered unharmed when my personnel board the station, and if the Manticoran freighters held in the system are allowed to depart, no one else needs to be injured or killed. If, however, our people are not surrendered, or if they are harmed in any way, or, if those freighters are not allowed to depart unhindered, I will take whatever military action seems appropriate, up to and including the use, the additional use, of deadly force. And if any of our people are harmed or treated as hostages threatened with harm, I will regard the personnel responsible for those actions as pirates liable to summary execution, since it's evident that attempting to convince you to see reason is about as effective as arguing with a rock. I see no point in further discussion." I've informed you of my intentions and of the consequences of continued intransigence on your part. So far as I'm concerned, this conversation is over. I advise you to inform whoever's in charge of Shona Station that my pinnaces will be docking with the station within 15 minutes of my destroyer's arrival in Cinnamon Orbit, however. He showed his teeth. I wouldn't want anyone else to get hurt just because they didn't know we were coming. He gazed at Duenas for another heartbeat, and the governor stared back, trying to find a response. None had come to him before Zavala nodded coldly. Good day, Governor Duenas. 
That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 19, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bain interns Allegra Torres, Christopher Cifani, and Marie Paduk. And as always, to composer Ruth Judkowitz. Raking grapeshot barrages of hurrahs and thank yous to Michael Z. Williamson. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 